Actually, about half of the world's population has been infected at least once by COVID-19. Now, I'm not trying to open up a political conversation here, okay? But no matter where you lie in your beliefs about COVID-19, it is difficult to argue against the idea that it was a pandemic. An epidemic of infectious disease has spread across a large region or worldwide. COVID-19 and its effects were deadly. They were physically deadly, as many people actually died from the disease itself. They were economically deadly, as our market still tries to recover. Uh, it, they were e- 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 emotionally deadly, as we were socially isolated for months. And they were spiritually deadly, as church attendance dwindled during the time of COVID-19. But as deadly as COVID-19 was and still is, it is nothing compared to the most deadly pandemic the world has ever and will ever see. A disease that you contracted from the day that you were born. A disease that will follow you into the grave and beyond. A, A disease that was passed on to you by your father, Adam. A disease that has led to broken marriages, war and destruction, murder, adultery, economic ruin, devastation beyond measure, and so much more. A disease that dwells in my heart right now. A disease that goes by the name of sin. This morning, we are going to look at God's word and we're going to see how, God, how sin has infected all people how sin will be judged, and how sin will be cured. So please follow along with me as I read along in the words of King David from the book of Psalms, chapter 14. Psalm 14. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man and see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins because of the blood of Jesus. We pray that your word would go forth with power here. We pray that you would remind believers afresh of the gospel, that they are forgiven of their sins, and that you would convert sinners for the first time into everlasting life. We lift these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our time this morning is going to be built around three points, three main points. The first point is live like there is a God. The second point, be warned there is a judge. And the third point, rejoice, there is a Savior. 
So, point number one, live like there is a God. <clears throat> Look with me at verses one through three. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So as it says at the beginning of this psalm, this is a psalm that was written by King David. Now David was king of Israel, and we do not know exactly when this was written by King David, uh, but we do know that David went through many trials and tribulations in his life that could cause him to pen these words. It may have been when he was, when he was being hunted by King Saul, when he was being oppressed by the Philistines, when he was facing a coup by his son Absalom. While we do not know the exact time of this psalm, we do know that there are a number of events that could have motivated him to write these things down. And so, in verse 1, David looks out on the human race. He looks at all people, not just those who are oppressing him, but the entire race. He assesses what he sees. He looks at the motives and the actions of the men around him, and he comes to a conclusion. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. It's quite the verdict. And honestly, he's, he's got a little bit of gall here to assume that he knows what every person is doing all the time and thinking all the time and says there is none who does good. And so David, recognizing that you may not take his spirit-empowered and errant words to heart calls on another witness. And he says in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So the omniscient God of the universe is called to the witness stand. The God who created everything and knows everything. And he assesses the situation. And he comes to the same exact conclusion that David came to earlier. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Notice first here the scope of this disease. No one does good. And then as if the author is expecting some kind of retort, like what about this person? He goes on to say, no one does good. Not even one person. Now some people may look at this and argue that this can't actually mean no one. The phrase no one has to mean the wicked who are oppressing David and the Israelites at that time. Because clearly the psalm discusses later on the people of God and the generation of the righteous in verses 4 through 7. And so some would say that there are some who are, are righteous because the psalm itself mentions them. My comment to, to that, um, turn with me to Romans 3 verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Keep your thumb in Psalm 14 and go to Romans 3. <coughs> Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So Paul here is writing to the, the Roman church. And he writes this. <coughs> what then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So here in the book of Romans, Paul is crafting an argument, right? And this argument is that everybody is under sin. Gentiles are under sin and Jews are under sin. And notice the passage that he uses to prove his argument. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And skip all the way down to verses 22b and 23. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the Apostle Paul pens inerrant words here to the church in Rome, and as he's crafting his argument to show that everybody has fallen short of the glory of God, he references Psalm 14. Don't be mistaken here. When God looks out on the human race and says, no one does good, not even one, he truly means nobody does good. Notice second, the depth of this disease. So in the beginning, God created man in his own image. He was created to glorify him and to dwell with him forever. But as a result of the fall in Genesis 3, the nature of man has been marred. What was once proclaimed as very good is now spoiled, decayed, rotten, perverted, corrupt. Man who was made to be in perfect communion with God now does not seek after him. But they reject him. And they say in their heart, there is no God. And as a result of their corruption, they do abominable deeds, horrendous evil. And it doesn't take us long to see this in the world today. You need not look further than the war in Ukraine or human trafficking or the selfish pursuit of money in so many people, or the broken marriages, or a child's temper tantrum. To see that the sinful corruption that is present in all mankind has infected all of us. Now, this does not mean that nobody ever does anything good or selfless or kind or loving, but it does mean that these instances are solely from the mercy and common grace of God alone. And thankfully, God does not allow mankind to spiral into the depths of depravity that we would to go, go down, left on our own volition. But make no mistake, outside of the grace of God, no one is good. And notice third, the roots of this disease. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. So the root issue from which stems the corruption of mankind is this idea that God does not exist. Now, everyone on the planet knows deep down in their heart that God exists. Romans 1, 19-21 makes it clear every person on this planet has seen God manifested in his creation, and so they are without excuse. But they don't like that fact. They don't like the fact that there is a God who created them to live their lives solely for him. There is a God who has a right to tell them how to live. There is a God that they have rebelled against. That there is a God who sees every action that they do. Every thought 
that I have, every single thing that I look at, every hidden secret sin. And there is a God who will hold them accountable to their actions. And so it's easier to convince yourself that there is no God. There is no eternal judge. There is no one who will hold me to my actions. There's no one who, will, who holds providence over mankind. There's no one that I need to give an account to on that last day. And sin hardens us to actually believe this. The fool's character is evidenced by his thoughts. He says in his heart, there is no God. And it results in action, abominable deeds and corruption. The fool's character is evidenced by his thoughts, and it leads to action. <coughs> so, I want to speak to unbelievers and believers alike here first. And hopefully my first application is staring you right in the face as we read this text. And that is that no one does good. That you cannot do good. That you are corrupt. That I am corrupt. That everybody performs rebellious deeds. We are all incredibly selfish, woefully prideful, bountifully greedy, incurably angry, and uncontrollably lustful. If you are a believer, you should know this. And if you're not a believer, you may not have heard it before. You are far more evil than you could even dream of. And if, if you don't believe me, just try to be perfect. Just, just try to not get angry. Just try to control your eyes. Just try to... Be selfless and perfectly loving to everybody. And you'll see that you will fail. Now, believers, I want to speak to you now. Do you profess with your lips that there is a God, but live out your life and your thoughts as if he does not exist? Do you go about your day without even considering the God who created you and who saves you from your sin? Remember what we said before, the fool's character is evidenced by his thoughts and leads to action. What is your thought life like? You may not physically say those words, there is no God, but do you live like there isn't? Or do you think like there isn't? Do your thoughts exalt the name of your God and seek to please him, or do they entertain the sinful desires and actions that you wish to carry out? Casting crowns said it in their song, Slow Fade. The journey from your mind to your hands is shorter than your thinking. Be careful if you think you stand, because you just might be sinking. And isn't that exactly how sin works? <clears throat> it lulls you into this false sense of security. Sure, it was a second glance, but it's not like I committed adultery. Sure, I get really excited about my promotion and making more money, but it's not like I'm embezzling or cheating on my taxes. Sure, I may compare myself to other people on social media, but it's not like I'm slandering them behind their back. Sin of the mind is a cancer. It hides, it lays dormant, it shows no external symptoms. Everything seems fine on the outside, but inside it spreads. And it consumes and it destroys. 
and it controls. Until eventually it reveals itself for what it actually was in the first place. And at that point, it's too late. And at that point, sin kills. Sin is sin. Sins that look okay on the outside because they aren't one of those big sins are still sins. Sins of the mind are still sins. We need to be rooting out every single sin that is in our lives. Every wicked thought that we have, every ungodly action we partake in, don't play with it. Don't coddle it. Don't explain it away. But kill it. And brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm, I am speaking this to myself, even as I'm saying it to you right, right now. Don't think that I am any higher or more righteous than you are, because sins of the mind can, 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 can drip us and come upon us and can fool us in ways that we don't even see. And all this really just boils down to one question. In my heart, do I say that there is a God or that there is not a God? What do you say? So point one was live like there is a God. Point two, be warned there is a judge. Look with me at verses four through six of Psalm 14. That point was be warned there is a judge. So, verses 4 through 6. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So, notice the character of these people that God is speaking against. They are evildoers who eat up God's people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. So these evildoers are are devising wicked actions against God's people. They are workers of wickedness, devisers of iniquity. They plan and scheme how they can do hurt to the people of God. They eat up God's people just as easily as they would eat up bread. They devour, they gorge themselves, they consume the people of God with no remorse for their actions. No prickling of their conscience, no pause in their step. They hate the people of God because they hate God himself. And the easiest way to get at God is to get at his people. And don't forget, in their head, all the while, they are saying, there is no God. There is no judge who will call me to give an account. There is no one who will condemn my actions. There is no justice I will have to pay for. Eat up. Consume. Devour. And look at God's question to these people that he gives them here. Have they no knowledge? Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? Don't you know anything? How how stupid can you be? You, You must not, because if you did... You would look at creation, at the tear of the lion, at the might of the sequoia, at the vastness of the cosmos, at the intricacies of the human body, at the patterns of the ant, at the strength of the hurricane, and you would come to the conclusion that there is a God, an all-powerful God, a just God, 
And if I am devouring his beloved people, what will happen to me? Have they no knowledge? And he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, There he will be in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. This opposition to the people of God is a a terrible place to be in. For God is with his people. God is with his people. Has anybody seen the movie The Revenant? It came out in 2015. Sorry, Leonardo DiCaprio. It was set in the year 1823, uh, and it follows a group of fur trappers uh, who are hunting in the middle of the wilderness of modern-day Dakotas. Uh, And if you've seen the movie or remember it at all, you remember one scene. And everybody here knows the scene that I'm talking about. I'm seeing some nods in the audience. (coughs) While hunting alone in the pre-Dakota wilderness, their leader, Hugh Glass, hears a quiet growl. He brings up his gun, ready to shoot. He, he, He looks around and he sees nothing. When suddenly he comes across a pair of baby grizzly bears. The camera slowly pans over to his face, and he is filled with terror because he recognizes what this could mean. And finally, the camera pans over to his shoulder, and you see the mother grizzly bear barreling down on Hugh Glass. 600 pounds of brute strength, claws, and teeth. She charges him to the ground and and mauls him apart. Like a dog with a squeaky toy or a rag doll, she throws him, rips him, and devours him. The scene is infamous, and if it is not for the faint of heart. One of the most foolish things that you can do in this world is get between a mother bear and her cubs. Because she will do anything to protect them from danger. Friends, God created the mother bear. God gave her the strength that she has to protect her young because he is a mighty God. And God gave her the protective nature for her children because he is protective of his children. He is a loving God. He is a mighty God. And he is a just God. Believer here this morning, one who has trusted in Jesus as their Savior, who has repented of their sin, who has found themselves in the family of God with the Creator Himself as their Father, there is immense comfort in this passage for you. God is with His people. The Creator of the she bear is with you. He is with you in your hurt, He is with you when you are mistreated, He is with you when you are mocked at work. He is with you when your job is in jeopardy because of your faith. He is a just God, and nothing goes unseen by him. No sin in this world will go by undealt with. You do not need to enact justice for yourself. Justice will come. You need only be faithful. Man may shame your plans, but the Lord is your refuge. And brothers and sisters, know that in the midst of your suffering, the Lord is 
a refuge for you. We were talking to Hudson and Violet, my, my two kids, about what it means for the Lord to be a, a refuge. And one of the books that we were reading to them likened it to shelter from a storm. How many of you guys have, have been caught in a thunderstorm, maybe even this past Saturday or Friday or whenever it was, <clears throat> and the rain is pouring down, and your hands are full with groceries or bags or maybe a car seat, and there is a river of water beneath your feet. There is lightning and thunder that is crashing. You are sprinting through the rain. And suddenly, you reach the picnic shelter. Or you get to your front porch. Or you get to your car. And just like that, chaos turns in, into peace. You are sheltered. You are protected. The storm is still going on all around you. The rain did not stop falling, but there is peace as you look out from the midst of your refuge. People of God, the Lord is your refuge. Keep going back to him with your hurt. Go to him with your sin. Go to him with your joys. In the chaos of life, he is a refuge for you. Find peace in him. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. But, um, unbeliever, this is not the same for you. Sinner, fool, corrupt man who is created to bless and honor God, but uses his life to curse his creator and commit abominable deeds? Have you no knowledge? God's judgment is coming. You may think that you're getting away with it. You may say in your heart, in your thoughts, in your actions, that there is no God who will hold me accountable, but I am here to tell you that that could not be farther from the truth. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards says, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. There are innumerable places in this covering, so weak that they won't bear their weight, and these places are not seen. You are right now walking over rotten floorboards. With the flames of hell beneath you, and at any time you can make a wrong step, you you could get in a car accident, you could have a heart attack, You could step on a rotten floorboard and fall straight through into the eternal flames. You may think that you are standing on firm ground, when in fact at any point you could die. And outside of Christ, you will go to hell. There will be no repenting at that point. There will be no turning back. There will be no compassion. There will be no mercy. There will be wrath. There will be justice. In that place, you are not the baby cub being protected by the she-bear. You are the man who is mauled by the bear. Ripped apart, devoured, thrown like a rag doll. And the bear of God's wrath is coming for you. And that bear of God's wrath will continuously come against you 
eternal torment in a godless eternity where every good gift is stripped away. And you will be thrown into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. The fire will never go out. The worm will never die, and the fire will not be quenched. But it will continue to eat you and burn you and destroy you with no hope of ever escaping. The most tortured soul here on earth is better off than the most comfortable person in hell. Think about that statement. Think about the horrible suffering that takes place here on earth. Think about the slavery, the poverty, the human trafficking, the starvation, the wickedness. The most tortured soul here on earth is better off than the most comfortable person in hell. Friends, this is an uncomfortable teaching. Hell is an uncomfortable topic. Judgment is an uncomfortable topic, but this is what the Bible teaches. Believer here this morning, do we look upon the people we come into contact with with these eyes? Do we share with our unbelieving friends the desperate state that they find themselves in? Pastor Raymond says it often. Every person we come into contact with has a soul that will never die. And brothers, again, I'm preaching this just as much to myself as I'm preaching it to you. I don't see my coworkers in this way. I don't see my neighbors in this way. Why would I care what my friends thought about me if I truly believed that there was a God and that they are going to hell because of their sins against him and because they are not in Jesus? An unbeliever, there is wrath coming for you because of your sin. You are in great terror. There is a God, there is a judge And your sins will not be hidden, but will condemn you before him. And if you die in your sins apart from Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell. And God would be completely just to allow it to happen. And not just you, but everyone. Everyone has sinned against God. Everyone is deserving of hell. No one does good. No, not one. This is the fate we all deserve to experience. This is the fate that I deserve to experience this morning. Because I have rebelled against the holy God. Because I am corrupt. Because outside of the grace of God and left to myself, I do not do any good. Our greatest problem in this world is not the Philistines or Absalom or King Saul or our co-workers or our boss or our debt or our persecutors or the Democrats or the Republicans. Your greatest enemy in this world is sin. Your own sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is a pandemic that has crossed racial barriers, countries and continents, rich and poor, strong and weak. It has plagued your very heart. And for this reason, outside of Christ, right now, we are walking over a tightrope with the angry fires of hell and the wrath of God lapping up at us. From depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before thee? I know I can't.
But praise God that that is not the end of the story. Point one was live like there is a God. Point two, be warned there is a judge. Point three, rejoice because there is a Savior. (laughs) Rejoice there is a Savior. Verse seven, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Friends, salvation has come out of Zion. Romans 3.23, that verse that we looked at before, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it goes on to say, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, the fact that you are a sinner is horrible news. It is the worst news that you will ever hear in this world. But Jesus Christ himself offers up salvation for your sin. Jesus Christ came down to earth and took the form of a man, and he lived a sinless life that you could never live. And he never sinned one time. And Jesus offers up to you his own perfectness, his perfect life, never sinning once. And he took your sins on himself. So when God looked on Jesus, he saw the evil that you and I committed. The heart that says that there's no God, the way that we devour other people for our own good, the abominable deeds that we perform, the things that we see, the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we say. And God punished his beloved son because of the sin that you and I committed. Jesus bore the wrath of God for you. Jesus experienced the hell that you and I deserve when he went to the cross. Shai Lin says in his song, Three Hours, So forever will I tell, in three hours Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. But Jesus rose again from the grave, triumphing over sin and over death, showing that his death was enough. That sin was destroyed and death defeated. And he ascended again to the right hand of the Father in glory. If you trust in Jesus and have repented of your sins, there is no more guilt for you. Amen. (laughs) There's none. Your sins are as far away from you as the east is from the west. And, And notice it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because if you went far enough north, eventually you're going to start going south. But if you go east, you're going to keep going east, and you're going to keep going east, and you're going to keep going east. And that is how far away your sins are away from you, because of what Jesus did. And not only that, but you are given Jesus' perfect life, and you can inherit the kingdom of God. You can dwell with him forever in eternity. You can experience eternal life, not because of anything that you did but only because of what he did. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, his sheep will never taste the pains of hell. If you are in Jesus, you will never experience hell, although it's what you deserve. Not because your sin doesn't deserve to be punished, not because God ignored your sins, but because your sin has already been paid for by Jesus. 
Therefore, my trust is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. On him, my soul shall rest. His word upholds my, my fainting spirit. His promised mercy is my fort, my comfort and my sweet support. I wait for it with patience. The fact that we are sinners is horrible news. And when we hear it, we should be in great terror. But how much sweeter does it make the good news of Jesus? When we see what we should have been and see what we've been given. How much worship should it drive us to? When we see what we deserve and see what we've inherited instead. And though you still suffer in this world, take heart. Because the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. The Lord is with his people. The Lord is a refuge for his people. And one day, the Lord will deliver his people once and for all from persecution, from enemies, from trials, from unemployment, from debt, from pain, from suffering, and from sin and death itself. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, when you will never sin. And we will dwell with our Father forever. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows, our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise your name this morning. Because you've saved us. Drive us to deeper worship of you. Give us a deeper recognition of of what you truly did for us on the cross. Allow that to drive us to love you more, serve you more faithfully, and to keep coming back to you when we sin. Lord, I pray for the unbelievers here this morning. I pray that if this was the first time that they heard the gospel, that they that you would work in their hearts and that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, I I pray for our evangelism. I pray that you would give a heart that that longs to see people come to know you. I pray that we would see conversions here in this building and in other churches throughout our county and and the world. And Lord, when, when when your people are struggling through trials, I pray that they would continue to trust in you to know that you are with them and that you are a refuge for them. And we lift all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.